You're listening to Red Ten Sisters, a podcast providing expert sisterly advice on women's most pressing reproductive and sexual health questions. Today on the podcast, we're speaking to Laura Bryden, the author of the Period Repair Manual, about menstrual-related issues, everything from period pain to acne and PMS. Welcome, Laura. We're so thrilled to have you here. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, we can't wait to chat. (laughs) So I'd love to get started with uh, the book that you've written, because as Amy mentioned, uh, you've written a new book called The Period Repair Manual, and we'd love to know what inspired you to write this book and what's that all about. Okay, great. So it's a a manual, essentially a comprehensive guide to um, everything women need to know about periods, you know, why we have periods, what a period should be like, what kinds of things can go wrong with a period, and then what are the various things that women can do about it, including both conventional and, of course, natural treatments. And my, I wrote intention just because I really wanted to get the information out there. These are things that I, you know, I, I learned from 20, work, 20 years of work with patients, the, the kinds of things that women, a gap in their knowledge, the kind of things they needed to know. Mm. Yeah, and I certainly feel like there is huge gaps in terms of what we're taught. I mean, the number of times that customers and clients come to us and be like, why aren't we taught this in school? There's, yeah, there's a lot of either lack of information or also misinformation. It's so true. You know, it's only after I released the book this year and then started getting some feedback from my readers that I realized how huge that gap is. You know, people saying, thanking me and saying, you know, I've, I've, you know, this is something I needed to know and for example one of my the quotes that really just sticks in my mind was I had no idea that diet affects periods Mm -hmm. yeah and and it's such a huge factor we're going to be talking about that a little bit more as we get into the call so one of the things we really wanted to uh, share with our listeners was a little bit about uh, PMS because you've got a whole section in there about PMS and a lot of my clients, as you know, I teach fertility awareness charting and so the issue of PMS <laughs> comes up a lot um, and a lot of women are not aware that there are different forms of PMS. So we were hoping that you could tell us a little bit about, you know, what the different forms are and how they differ from one another. Oh, yeah, great. Amy, let's explore that today together in a podcast. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know as you work with women, you're aware yourself of how many different kinds of things are going on in a woman's cycle. It's it's obviously not just one thing. But, you know, we have um, both estrogen and progesterone are supposed to be going up in the second half of the cycle, and that doesn't always happen. Or in the case mm-hmm. of estrogen, it can go up too high. And also the second half of the cycle, so associated with that is a quite a dramatic change in levels of neurotransmitters of serotonin and something called GABA, which is our calming mm-hmm. neurotransmitter. And so they're associated with premenstrual symptoms as well. And then there's this whole other thing happening with the immune system because the, the second half of the cycle is just naturally a state of more inflammation. So if women mm-hmm. have underlying problems with their immune system or chronic inflammation happening, then for them, that's what flares up during PMS. So so I hope in in future, we all, all of us will just start being a bit more um, precise about what, what it is that's happening. Absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit about the, there there are like four different main types, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Well, I've broken it into, this is just coming out of my clinical work and what I because I find clinically, and I'm sure you can agree, it doesn't make sense to just have a blanket treatment for 
PMS. It's like, hey, what are we doing with that? You know, we need to think about it a bit more. So essentially, I work with the four types I've, I work with. With my patients are the quite a classic high estrogen PMS, which yep. Um, yep. is defined by, I would say that looks like irritability because uh, estrogen is quite stimulating. It boosts um, serotonin and dopamine. So um, that angry kind of irritable PMS, which is almost always associated with um, some degree of breast tenderness and probably a tendency to a heavier flow with the period, which comes from being exposed to more estrogen during that part of the cycle. So that's the first type. I'm sure you've seen that with your clients. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And then a less common variant of that, certainly there's some of us out there in the world, and I think I've tended to be one of these, who have tended to be perhaps a lower level of estrogen at times or a lower baseline estrogen, which so then what can happen is estrogen falls away too quickly. And, Mm -hmm. you know, at the end towards in the last few days of the cycle, and that can look like, not irritability, but something different, like more like often um, insomnia and perhaps more feeling more depressed or you know withdrawn. That's that's how low estrogen feels like, and also then associated with a probably a lighter than average period. And low estrogen can happen in women that are lower body weight or um, vegetarian, for example, or eating a lot of soy or smoke. There's lots of different reasons why that can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I guess, the second type. And then the third type, and before I get to the third type, I'll just say there is a little bit of overlap between some of these types. So there's often overlap between this um, third type, which I call the low progesterone type, and this, that often is combined with a high estrogen picture as well. So you have to tease those apart. But progesterone is a fantastic, wonderful hormone that we make in the second half of our cycle. And it's a natural, it interacts in our, in our brain. It interacts with um, our GABA receptors. And as I said earlier, GABA is a a calming neurotransmitter. It's kind of like our, it's Valium essentially is our hormonal. So progesterone is our hormonal Valium. (laughs) So we're supposed to have this nice calming influence that comes in and actually progesterone is as you know, the hormone also in the major hormone in pregnancy, into a huge amount of progesterone in sort of around the middle part of the pregnancy that can be quite calming or should be quite calming. And yep. so women should be getting a little dose of that with every cycle. And the body's primed for that. It's, you know, it's needing this GABA message to come in. And if that doesn't happen, that can also um, be associated with, if, if women aren't making enough progesterone, they can feel anxious. That's the, the picture I see and maybe see a little bit of premenstrual spotting, which is that what happens when there isn't enough progesterone to hold the uterine lining. Yeah, I see that a lot in my practice. Yeah, and, and just in terms of what you do and, you know, fertility tracking, women can monitor that with their charting, of course, right? In, um, yeah. As in temperature, as in perhaps not seeing a, a temperature, that luteal phase mm-hmm. rise in temperature that holds. Yeah, um, throughout the second half of the cycle. And then finally, I guess the fourth type is what I referred to earlier, inflammation. So there's, I'm always looking for signs of chronic inflammation, this is joint pain or you know, just a flare-up in sinus problems or headaches or feeling a bit flu-like or kind of fluish in the second half, in the, later in the cycle. Some women complain of that. It's not always there, but that's something that can happen. And it could, by headaches, I mean migraines as well. 
I do have mm-hmm. premenstrual migraines are quite a common picture. And migraines are essentially, migraine headaches are an inflammatory condition. So then we need to be thinking about not so much the hormones themselves, but immune function, which always comes back to gut function. And I saw, I was interested in browsing your website, and I saw a couple of interesting quotes about how much the gut influences hormones. So I think you're spot on with that. That's great. Yes, absolutely. And we'll be talking about that a little bit more because it's something I, I work with a lot with my clients in terms of, um, you know, cutting out food allergens and, and just generally trying to work on an anti-inflammatory diet. And that's becoming increasingly important for myself as I just discovered I have uh, Hashimoto's, which we're going to talk about a little bit later in the call. <laughs> yeah, which so, is an inflammatory, inflammatory yeah. condition. Yep, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're clarifying those four differences because I'm really noticing how much I didn't know about that. And I'm assuming that those are treated very differently, right? But a lot of people kind of group them all together. Yeah, exactly. So clinically, it's a different, it's a different strategy. And mm-hmm. I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes. As you probably know, I mean, premenstrual syndrome is quite, it's controversial. And I think perhaps rightly so, you know, that some of the research shows is conflicting and just, you know, that just perhaps it doesn't even exist, which I think it really mm-hmm. does for many women. And mm-hmm. I think partly why they're failing to pick up to see it is because they're looking for perhaps one thing when really it's just lots of different um, challenges or changes during the hormonal mm-hmm. cycle for women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I find that with a lot of um, women's health is just like the blanket solution. So Speaking of which, that I know a lot of women yeah. are put on hormonal birth control to manage irregular absent periods. So I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about some of the causes of absent periods or long cycles. Great question. And well, first let's let's clarify for your listeners, and I know you know this as well, that but pill bleeds are not periods. They're mm-hmm. really not equivalent to periods in any way. So we've been it's just a bizarre phenomenon to me that we've, we've somehow, we're locked in this idea that, yeah, of inducing these regular, which are really just pharmaceutically, you know, drug withdrawal bleeds that women are, it's, it's perceived to be good enough for women when obviously it's not. So that's the first thing. And I, t- I talk about that. I go into a lot of detail about that in my book. Um, so <laughs> on to your question. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so we can all agree that pill bleeds are not good enough, really. So what are the reasons that women might not be having regular periods? Um, well, it's, it's a huge conversation. It's, it's essentially, and the phrase I use in my book is that our periods are our monthly report card. So they're like, you know, the sum total that, of everything that went, that went, is going right with our health. So I tend to approach it from that angle. So if, if women are not, having periods, it means they're not ovulating. And of course, ovulation is um, kind of a tricky thing to do. It requires that we have good thyroid health, for example. I know we're going to be speaking about thyroid later in the podcast. Mm -hmm. It's that we have to have good nutrition, that we don't, we're not doing anything inflammatory, you know, like smoking or all, all these different things that can interfere with ovulation. And that's, you know, why we end up not having regular periods. Um, of course, often the women that aren't having regular periods end up falling into a couple of big categories of diagnosis, which I'm sure you work with all the time. One is called PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. And then the second one, second diagnosis that a woman might be given 
if she's not having regular periods, it's really just a kind of a catch-all diagnosis, which is called hypothalamic amenorrhea, which just means essentially it's Latin for you're not having periods. <laughs> you're not having periods. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I love what you've said there about the report card. Um, Geraldine, who is the founder of Just Yeast, she often refers to um, menstruation as kind of the fifth vital sign. And a similar kind of concept is, you know, if if it's missing, we know something's wrong, right? Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm not sure why doctors kind of fail to address this and... Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, as I, I talked about that a little bit in um, chapter two of my book, or I think it's the first chapter, that it's, I, I, you know, it's a lot easier to just prescribe the pill. I can understand that. Mm-hmm. If you have a 10, 15-minute conversation with your doctor, it, it's really not enough time to ask the question of what are all the different reasons why you might not be ovulating, like your diet, your stress, your all these things. It's like they yeah. don't. Yeah really have, that's not the venue, you know, the doctor's appointment is really not a, a place they can dive into that, which is why it's so important for them to, you know, work with someone like yourself or, um, you know, other mm-hmm. practitioners who have the time and who can work through every aspect of life that might be interfering with periods. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, we know you share our passion on hormonal birth control. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do you see as some of the major problems associated with taking it? Like, what are some of the symptoms you see or the problems when women are coming off of it or kind of the long-term health implications? Okay. We're in the middle, oh, I think we're in the middle of a paradigm shift around hormonal birth control. And, yeah, it's long overdue. And I'm yeah. pretty excited. Just, I will mention, <laughs> I mean, you guys, I know you backed the film. There's a film coming out, so we all backed on Kickstarter. It was very exciting last month. Yeah. Sweetening sweeten the pill. And it's going to be one of the first, you know, maybe the first sort of mainstream, real look at this, something that we've just, something that we've had for 50 years now, and we've just somehow, I see it kind of like, I see that hormonal birth control is like the emperor's new clothes. It's like we, all of us, you know, that, that fable, everyone's looking at, we know there's, there's something wrong with this, fundamentally wrong, but we all just keep not saying it for some reason, well, some of us are saying, <laughs> but it's um, the biggest problem, rather, I, the way I like to speak about it, rather than running through a list of, oh, it causes depression, which it does, and, you know, migraines and weight gain, and you could, you could approach it that way in terms of side effects, or we could think about it more fundamentally in that it, my biggest problem with it is that it shuts down women's hormones. It shuts them off essentially it is and then replaces them with these synthetic these versions kind of pseudo versions of women's hormones which are not at all the same thing they don't have the same benefits or the same effects for example i spoke about progesterone our wonderful progesterone and how it acts like it's our hormonal valium and it does it does lots of other wonderful things for us it um, promotes hair like head you know healthy growth of head hair and things like that and the progestins the kind of pseudo whatever they are, I don't know, not even vaguely progesterone that they give us in the pill, does the complete opposite in most cases. It's not good for GABA. It's not good for mood. It's not good for the brain. Many of them cause, many of the types of progestins cause hair loss, which is something that I see a lot in my clinic. And so 
and it's in the meantime, you know, we're given these pseudo hormones, but we underneath all of that, we've lost our own hormones. You know, it's a form of it's castration. I guess it's it's a chemical castration of women, and I I think looking back, future generations are not going to quite be able to believe that we did this to three or four generations of women. Yeah, absolutely. I think that. Um you know, we wrote a blog post uh, a few weeks back where we were talking about this issue of, you know, why is it so hard to critique the pill or why mm-hmm. are so many people afraid to critique the pill? And it, it really seems that, um, you know, because the pill did so many things in terms of, you know, helping the feminist movement and women's liberation in terms of moving into the workforce and letting them have control over their reproduction, that somehow critiquing the pill seems to be um, seen as critiquing, you know, women's rights, women's freedoms, women's contraceptive contraceptive options, which is really not what we're trying to do. Um, but they somehow become synonymous, I think, in a lot of people's minds. Exactly. That was a great article. I shared that. I love that. You guys wrote that. Mm-hmm. I shared that with my own followers. Thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think, and I, I did speak about this in the book. So what I'd say in the in the chapter on hormonal birth control, I think I opened with something like, um, I celebrate that, you know, the women that we gained access to to birth control and that we, I I think that needs to be acknowledged. We need to maybe thank that and give homage to that. And, but now it's time to move on because it's not, birth control is not synonymous with hormonal birth control. I mean, yes, women Mm -hmm. have the right to birth control. I think, I don't think any sane person really is going to, you know, question that. Like that's the modern world. But mm-hmm. there, as you, of course, you know, there are so many other options. There are other options that exist now, and there are other future options that are coming, options that are not castration. So I, I just can't mm-hmm. accept that women's only option to be liberated is to shut down their hormonal cells. It's just not sustainable. It's, it's not, it just can't be how we move forward. So, yeah. Yeah, and I really, I agree. It seems like there's a real cultural shift happening with the sweetening the pill, and we've seen lots of other things. I was actually just mentioning to Amy that, you know, it's hard to notice or to know whether there's a real shift because my Facebook feed is already filled with like-minded individuals. So it's already filled with, you know, menstrual advocates talking about these things. But I really have seen a big shift in terms of mainstream media and how menstruation is being talked about there. And I think that the conversation is happening in a way that it wasn't before. And I'm kind of curious about, the reception of your book and whether you feel like that has been reflected, that that shift towards more acceptance has been reflected in how your book has been received. Yeah. Well, again, it's, as you say, I've got a skewed, I mean, certainly I really just hear from the people who bought my book, who enjoyed my book. So, you know, it's hard for me to know. But yes, I would say generally my perception is I released my book called Period Repair Manual in the year of the period. <laughs> you know, we're really, <laughs> that's just, just feels like there's a lot of conversations happening around women's periods. I, I think certainly in, in the world of health and the kind of health we do, you know, optimizing women's health in our communities. And then I'll just speak briefly. There's a, a broader awareness of sort of period positivity and around menstruation that's happening on a global scale, which I think is quite exciting, that women everywhere, even in developing countries, are talking about periods for kind of the first time, really. It's like, you know, it's celebrating. Yeah. Or this, this, um, I'm sure you know the hashtag called um, 
menstruation matters or you know, yeah. women everywhere can have access to menstrual supplies and can know that it's a normal part of being a human, not just being a woman, but, you know, being a human being, really. We're 50% of human beings on the planet and we have periods. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, that's certainly been our experience, too, is just yeah, seeing that shift. Um, yeah. So one of the things I wanted to get back to was we were talking about how um, the pill is often used um, not just for birth control, but to manage other symptoms. And so one of the other ones that we know a lot of our clients um, have used it to manage is acne. And I know that that's something that you address in your book. So can you tell our listeners some um, natural ways that acne can be addressed, especially for women who are coming off of the pill? Great question. There's a, okay, so there's something called the, I call it the horrid pill withdrawal acne, <laughs> which <laughs> is very, the way it works, and I'm sure you're listening, they need to, they either have experienced this or they need to know that this might happen to them, is at, at, so the synthetic estrogen in the pill is, it dries up skin oils. It, it really does suppress acne in a quite a powerful way, which is of course, is of course why it's powerful, it's why it's popular. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it was doing anything, correcting, like, you know, in any way something the woman needed, but it certainly can um, mask the symptom of acne. And then the skin gets used to that level of synthetic estrogen. So then it essentially upregulates its oil production to kind of compensate for that. And then when you stop the pill, first, it might be okay the first few weeks or kind of month. There's about a, it, my experience with my patients is about three months after coming off the pill, you get, it ramps up. You get, you can get quite a, you know, severe acne that you might not have ever seen before in your life. This is called pill withdrawal acne. And three months is usually the time, unfortunately, it's kind of the time to women will say, okay, I'll give it a few months. And it's like, oh, gosh, my skin is really bad. I must need to go back on the pill. And that's not at all the case. Because if you just go back on, you're just suppressing it again. You're promoting, you're becoming more and more, essentially, your skin is becoming more and more addicted to synthetic estrogen. It becomes very difficult to come off. So I ask my patients to push through this. I try to make a little clinical plan beforehand. It's like, okay, you know this might happen. Let's do everything we can to keep your skin happy. And now we come to diet. We talked about diet before. Obviously, diet has a huge impact on skin. There are a couple of foods that are just you know, acne promoters in many people. I'll just say here, some people don't get acne. So it's just a fact. I mean, genetically, some people just don't get ever get that symptom, almost regardless of what's going wrong with their hormones or their diet. But for those people that are vulnerable to it, it's almost always affected by, worsened by dairy and sugar in the diet. Those are like the, they're like the, you know, throwing gasoline on the fire kind of thing, in my experience. So that's what drives acne is that would you agree with your patients is that something yeah yeah so they i i get if i think if i think breakout skin breakouts are going to be a problem i will ask my patients to i'll suggest that they come off dairy products so cow's milk products including cheeses and yogurts and everything for even before they come off the pill just to try to get on top of it and prevent that post-pill three months breakout yeah right and a supplement. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And so on this kind of topic of um, you know, 
inflammation and all of these lovely things that the body is yeah. struggling with. Um, yeah. You have a section in your book called Advanced Troubleshooting. And one of the things yeah. you mentioned in this section is about thyroid disease. So, you know, I mentioned that we were in, earlier in the call that we were going to get to this because this is something I see so much of with my client base and also something I struggle with personally. So there's so much subclinical hypothyroidism that I'm seeing in my clients. And most of it is going completely undetected by mainstream um, doctors, unfortunately. And rarely are women getting um, proper kind of um not just diagnosis, but they're they're not even getting the correct testing in order to determine if they have uh, subclinical hypothyroidism or some kind of an underlying autoimmune issue like the one that I've got with Hashimoto's. So I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit and what women, you know, should be looking for if they suspect some kind of a thyroid issue and what they should be advocating for. Yeah, great question. It's, so our thyroid, it's just, yeah, as your listeners probably know, it's this um, gland in our hormone gland in our neck, and it it produces thyroid hormone, which is um, kind of like the ignition switch, the on switch for every tissue in the body. And the reason it affects periods so much is the ovaries desperately need to have enough thyroid hormone, and if they don't, they really can't do what they're supposed to do in terms of taking us through all the the stages of our of a, a natural hormonal cycle. So that's why we see it so often in our you know, group of women that are having problems with their periods. It's just, it, and it's common generally in the population, especially with women. Mm-hmm. And it's, as you've said, as you just explained, it's a um, very often, most in most cases, at least in our society, thyroid conditions are autoimmune, which means the immune system is attacking the thyroid gland itself, which is often called Hashimoto's. And, well, um, the test that women need, and it's, it's missed, it's often missed because there can be something significant happen, happening with the gland. Even before the standard basic thyroid test shows up abnormal. So the doctors all use a test called TSH, or thyroid stimulating hormone, and they're working under this paradigm, this idea that if you screen for that, you know, if that's falls in this quite a big range of normal, then then you're fine. You know, if, if you sort of fall within this range and they just dismiss it and they don't really have any further conversation about it, even if someone's sitting there with a lot of symptoms of underactive thyroid, including period problems, but also the other common symptoms of thyroid are hair loss. So just come back to hair, I just keep coming back to hair loss because I, see, I treat so much of it and it's such a distressing mm-hmm. problem. And also other symptoms of Thyroid can be depression, like mood, depression, and a um, sort of an intolerance. I'll just mention for your listeners, an intolerance to temperature changes, either to heat or cold. That is fine. They're the person that just can't, you know, is constantly <laughs> feeling like I can't cope with this heat or, you know, I need to put a, a sweater on. And, and so that's another comment. You can dry skin. There's a, you know, it's quite a, and those, and doctors used to, it's interesting, before the invention, of this blood test I referred to, the TSH test, before that was invented in, I think it was the early 1970s, doctors used to diagnose thyroid based on physical symptoms. And a lot of doctors, good doctors will still consider that, but your average just family doctor doesn't, again, doesn't probably have time to think about all the symptoms. And Mm -hmm. they've got this nice blood test, they think, oh, that's fine, I'll just test for that. And then, I don't know, know, a huge percentage of women are, are missed by that, basic test. So 
then the further testing, well, some of that women can do on their own. I'm sure with your own clients, you talk about doing a monitoring the basal body temperature. Yeah, well, because that's part of the fertility awareness method already, so that's partly how it shows up so frequently um, with my clients. Um, Exactly. So what it first discover? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would look like a lower than normal temperature throughout, and especially you can see it in the first part of the cycle. This sort of lower than well, I use Celsius, but lower than 36.5. Do you use Celsius? Of course, maybe in Boston now you'd use Fahrenheit, but um, (laughs) lower than you know. Mm-hmm. A, a basal body temperature of less than, well, less, you know, down around the 36 or even into the 35. So that's certainly what I can see. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. yeah. And that's a pretty good clue. Mm-hmm. And then based on symptoms and that, they, they then, what they really need is a test called thyroid antibodies, which is the test for the autoimmune, which I'll just say in my own practice, I order that all the time. I don't care if the TSH is normal. If mm-hmm. there are, is evidence that there's a thyroid, especially if there's a family history of autoimmune thyroid disease, test for thyroid antibodies because it, it's important. If that autoimmune process is happening, then it's affecting health regardless of whether it's actually showing up on the standard thyroid function TSH test or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's also, I work both, of course, with women who are using fertility awareness for birth control, but I'm also teaching it to women who are trying to get pregnant. And I think that this is often such an overlooked area of, you know, cause of infertility and also early miscarriage and frequent miscarriage. And I think it's just so unfortunate that this isn't being looked at more. It's, that's a great point. It is a cause. So there is a clinical study, and sometimes I'll include this in my notes, you know, if I'm communicating with a woman's doctor, linking merely the presence of thyroid antibodies with an increased risk for miscarriage. So mm-hmm. that's, that's what we were talking about before. It has a, oh, it has a huge effect on fertility. can't even begin to <laughs> – that cannot be overstated, how important thyroid is for fertility. Huge. Yeah. 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 Wow, it's just amazing to think about all these women who are, yeah, suffering from these things without knowing about it because we're just not testing for it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the things I wanted to, to touch on here is that, again, we've mentioned a few times how often the pill is used for managing, and I'm using sort of in, in air quotes there, managing symptoms yeah. <laughs> um, un, unrelated to reproductive uh, or to fertility. So one of the other things I know a lot of women or um, a lot of times women are put on it because of menstrual pain. I know for Amy, right, you had like debilitating cramps in high school, you used to miss school. And I know the same um, went for our mother who also had debilitating cramps. So, and I have a number of, of friends and certainly a lot of Amy's clients who are put on the pill for that, for that very reason. So I'm just wondering if you can tell our listeners some of the things that women can do to treat menstrual pain naturally so that they're, they're not resorting to being put on the pill for that. Okay. Yeah. Great question. So, Menstrual pain is so the standard menstrual pain. And let's before we just talk about, we'll talk about the standard menstrual pain, but before I do that, I'll just mention there is another kind of more serious menstrual pain <laughs> that is associated with a condition called endometriosis, which I mentioned because it's so common and it's so sadly overlooked. And often, you know, young women can go 10 years without getting a diagnosis of this condition. And so I've just um, recently actually written a, a guest blog about that and a link to from my site and I talk about it in my book and but it's just something I'll just mention straight out 
that they need to be alert to this. It's not, it's not normal. I mean, so normal menstrual pain would be, okay, it's got a bit of pain. I need a hot water bottle or I need to take a, like an Advil or, you know, an ibuprofen. That's okay. That's enough. That does it. But more severe pain is like, that doesn't work. You know, you're lying on the bathroom floor <laughs> in, in pain. And so I'm just distinguishing between the two things um, to begin with. But yeah, normal menstrual pain is about a, um, a low level of, again, inflammation, something called prostaglandins, which are made as part of our normal, they're, they're normal part of the menstrual cycle. They're associated with shedding the lining of the uterus. But for women that maybe are, have a higher, like some degree of chronic inflammation or a higher level of baseline inflammation, then the pain can be worse. And so that comes back to our conversation before about um, way about inflammation and ways to reduce that. Often inflammation is coming from the gut and from inflammatory foods such as dairy. I'll come back to dairy because I, I don't mm-hmm. certainly think I don't think every woman needs to avoid dairy. But I think this is the second thing we've talked about where dairy can be an aggravating or you know a, a food that's significantly contributing to the problem, especially in young teenage. So I can't even tell you how many times I've just it's as simple as. For a young girl, you know, she's being, she, she can't go to, you know, she's got pain and that bad enough, she can't go to perhaps to school some days and she, and the doctor wants to put her on the pill, but you really just need to have her stop having dairy and take a, a zinc supplement, which we'll come to in a minute. And that's, you know, that's good enough. She's, they, they, young teenagers respond really well to this kind of treatment and they can then avoid the pill. Um, so yeah, but the strategy is anti-inflammatory, removing inflammatory foods and using anti-inflammatory nutrients such as zinc and magnesium and turmeric. In fact, there's just a new, a brand new study about zinc, the effectiveness of zinc for menstrual pain just came out. I just tweeted it. I can, you know, I can easily um, provide that to you with that reference if you'd like. And it's, sure. Yeah. It's, That'd yeah. be great. And it's such a simple solution. And there's lots of reasons why young women are deficient in zinc. I'll just say it's, um, it's an important mineral that we get mainly from animal products. So certainly if you've got any client, you know, any women out there that are vegetarian, they're at real risk for zinc deficiency. So it's almost straight away, if any of my patients are vegetarian, I pretty much put them on zinc. I might test their zinc with a blood test, but I have it in the back of my mind that it's something we need to do almost straight away. And it's also can be sort of difficult to absorb sometimes enough zinc. All right. Well, thank you so much for yeah sharing those like tangible tips of, of things that yeah. people can do. Because as I said, I think so many women just think that there's nothing they can do, but it's really out of their control. And I think the theme throughout this call and the work that you do and the work that Amy and I do is really about empowering women to feel like they can do something themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Terrific. Well, thank you so much, Laura. I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners uh, where they can find you and how they can learn more. Obviously, um, they can purchase your book, <laughs> but tell them yeah. a little bit more about how they can um, hear from you and uh, benefit from your wisdom. Okay, great. Yeah, so my book, uh, Period Repair Manual, is on Amazon and iTunes and just kind of all the usual places online. Um, and then they can follow me on, they just Google Lara Bryden, really. They can find me on larabryden.com or I blog. And they they can follow my Facebook feed, Lara Bryden's Healthy Hormone Blog, or on Twitter, at Lara Bryden. Terrific. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This has just been incredible information, and we're so grateful that you wrote this book. It was very much needed, <laughs> and you know, lots of people are going to benefit um, from reading it and also from hearing you speak today. So thanks for joining us. Oh, and thanks for having me. It was really great chatting with you both. It's a pleasure. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Terrific. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. bye. Thanks for listening to Red Tent Sisters, the podcast. We're Kim and Amy Sedgwick, co-founders of Red Tent Sisters, a business dedicated to providing holistic fertility, sexuality, and contraceptive solutions. If you have something you'd like to share about this week's topic, we invite you to join the conversation on our Facebook page. Or if you have a question you'd like to hear addressed on the show or have an expert you'd like to see interviewed here, please send us an email at thesisters at redtensisters.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Red Ten Sisters, the podcast, for more great tips on how to resolve your feminine concerns and live a vibrant, passionate life naturally. Thanks for listening.